All right, talking about anger this morning out of Matthew chapter 5, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. If you're on a tablet, iPhone, Samsung, whatever, just get to Matthew 5. We're going to be digging into Jesus' words in verse 21 to 24. But talking about anger, think with me for a moment. Think to yourself, what do you think is the most epic, historical, angry meltdown you've ever seen? Okay, last service was like throwing stuff out. Just think to yourself, please. Keep your comments and thoughts to yourselves. But what is the most famous fits of anger? Can you think of some? Think of some just meltdowns people have had, just fits of anger. How about in the sports world? It's pretty easy to see there. Those of us who are Cubs fans had uh, uh, the privilege uh, of, of seeing Lou Pinella lose it a few times, right? Kicking dirt on home plate, picking bases up, chucking them across the infield, right? Lou Pinella, he's pretty entertaining. How about here in Indiana, Bobby Knight? What's Bobby Knight most famous for? Chucking a chair, right? Across the, uh, the court. How about John McEnroe? You guys remember him? Curly-haired guy, smashing tennis rackets, arguing out loud with line judges. How about another Cubs one? How about ex-Cubs pitcher Carlos Sombrano, right? Punching teammates, beating water coolers with baseball bats. Pretty entertaining. We got opening days tomorrow, so we know he had to throw in uh, a couple there. Uh, How about cinema? Any uh, meltdowns in cinema? Fits of anger there? My favorite is the dad from A Christmas Story, right? The Furnace and Bumpus's Hounds, like, right? And he kind of went into this, like, rage of cussing, but it really wasn't cussing, but it kind of made, like, it PG. It was kind of cool. How about John Goodman's character from Big Lebowski? Any of you guys Coen Brothers uh, fans? Uh, John Goodman's character, always angry forever during that entire movie. Here's one of my favorites, Steve Martin's uh, epic scene in the grocery store from Father of the Bride. Some big shot at the Wiener Company got together with some big shot at the Bun Company and decided to stick it to the American people. You guys remember that? He's pulling buns out of the bag, gets thrown in jail. Pretty epic. How about viral videos, YouTube viral videos? These are always like pretty like, right? That's the place to kind of get people's meltdowns. How many of you guys have ever heard of Jimmy Kimmel? Every year he does this thing on Halloween where he has their parents, the parents of the kids, record the next morning their kids' reaction when they tell them they ate all their Halloween candy. And he kind of puts this compilation together. Just, if you got a few moments this afternoon, go home, look it up, thank me later, okay? It's pretty, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. So how about real life? Have you witnessed any fits of anger lately? Have you witnessed any kids throwing fits? Have you witnessed any adults throwing fits lately? Anybody yell at a referee through a TV this week? Anybody yell at a referee through a TV this year? Anybody get angry while driving this week? On the way over here? This morning? How about your own home? Is anger an issue in your life? Does anger show itself in your own home, in your own life, in your marriage, in your heart? This last week, we were getting ready for school on a Friday and the kids got to be to school like 8.45, and I had a 9 o'clock meeting here. And so I should have not scheduled the meeting so close. But I was kind of like just very, very hurriedly and patiently telling my kids, get in the car. And Camden, my oldest, um, he did not obey me right away and was kind of like dribbling the soccer ball. And with these very dress shoes I have right now, I booted the soccer ball down the street, probably about seven houses down. And I yelled in his face, get in the car. It's really actually not funny. I apologize for it, repented it for it. Any, anything like that happened in your home recently? Yelling at your kids? Yelling at your spouse? 
Any fits of anger like that recently? To be completely honest with you guys, the reason I was led to, to preach on anger this weekend is that I've been walking through anger issues with a lot of people in our church in the privacy of counseling. And I've been actually very, very aware of my own anger over the last couple of months. And I felt pastorally, this is something that we needed to look at. And I felt pastorally, a lot of these are coming at me from a number of different angles. And anger is a thing that all of us wrestle with, all of us struggle with. And so I want to just encourage us pastorally um, today. And hopefully this message will be um, used by God to, to help you take some good steps in your life in anger. So I want to return to Jesus' words in Matthew 5 about anger. So go there, Matthew 5, 21 to 24. And then what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of launch into a biblical theology of anger. And we're going to see what the gospel has to say about our anger. But Jesus' words, Matthew 5, starting in 21, says this. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is doing here is he's bringing us to the root, to the heart of murder, and it is anger. Just like he's going to bring us to the heart of adultery, which is lust in our next uh, look at the commandment here. Jesus is bringing us to our root problem here. And in Matthew 5, I just want to point a couple of things out. Notice he describes a few people here. He describes, he says, everyone who's angry, right? So he mentions just everyone who's just angry. But then he mentions that th- those people where no outward action follows. But the last two people, whoever insults and then whoever says you fool, these are people who act out in their anger. So the first person that Jesus points out to is the person who is angry in the heart, though there's no physical manifestation or demonstration of that anger. And so Jesus isn't just addressing the person who acts sinfully in their anger, but also the person who brews anger and bitterness in their thoughts and in their hearts, though it may never manifest. And some of you guys might be really proud of yourselves that you might be an angry person, but I never lash out. I never fly off the handle. Well, Jesus says everyone who's angry in their hearts towards their brother is liable to the judgment. Jesus is showing us the radical, pervasive nature of sin, and he's showing us the radical nature of God's holiness here and how much we really fall short. Murder is about anger, anger in the heart. So then he talks about this person, whoever insults his brother. That word for insult there, it points to a posture of contempt. It points to a posture of pride towards someone. The word is raka, and it would be similar to someone calling someone a stupid idiot or a moron. You ever do that? You ever call someone an idiot? You ever thought in your mind that someone's an idiot or a moron, or maybe added a few extra adjectives to that? This is the person who just has a heart of contempt and a posture of pride towards everybody else. Everybody else on the road's an idiot who got their driver's license out of a Cracker Jack box. Everybody else that they come in contact with, servers, workers, employees, and people in general, everyone's an idiot. No one knows what they're doing. Everyone's stupid. You see the pride. You see the contempt in this guy. This next guy uses this expression, you fool. And it's actually a little bit more harsher than the insult, that word raka there. This is an insult of the heart and of the character of a person. So the other person just kind of uh, calls into question the competency of the person, like the insult, like stupid idiot. You fool calls into question the value and the worth of a person. Just say it'd be similar to saying something like this. You're good for nothing. Worthless. 
right? So when I, on the very last game of the season with the Bears against the Packers, and there's a certain safety who will go unnamed who blows his coverage and allows Aaron Rodgers to throw a four and eight pass for a touchdown, and the Green Bay Packers beat the Bears once again, and I say of this particular safety that you're garbage, that's a violation of the sixth command. You see the heart of you see the posture of pride, the posture of contempt. You're garbage, you're worthless. And what do we see here? In the, same, in the same discussion on murder, the image of God comes into this discussion as well. The image of God comes into our discussion on anger as well. It's interesting to see it still applies here. It's not just murder, but a heart posture and insults too that disregards the value of individuals being made in the image of God. When we set ourselves up as better, a position of superiority. We treat people with contempt. We look down on them. We insult them. We think angry thoughts and prideful thoughts in our hearts, and we question their worth and their value with our words. That's a violation of the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so we see that even in Jesus' words here, the image of God still comes into play. And so Jesus here takes the sixth commandment to the heart level, and he shows us how truly sinful we are. I mean, who, who of us in here has a stone to throw? Who of us in here was not implicated in Jesus' words there? All of us have done those things. All of us have had this heart posture at one point in time or another. Jesus implicated all of us here. And here's where the mirror metaphor needs to come in play because Jesus is showing us how beggarly we are for the grace of God. And he's showing us how much and how far and how deep sin is and how far we fall short of God's glory. We need a rescuer. We need God's grace. We need Christ. We need forgiveness. So when talking about anger, we need a little nuance because not all anger is bad. Anger is not bad all the time. It's not sinful all the time. And so we need to talk about anger because God oftentimes in the scriptures is angry. And he has a righteous anger and a holy anger. So let's talk about anger in the right way. Let's talk about anger in a holy way. Let's talk about God's anger. Let's talk about God's righteous anger. And what I want to point out to look at God's anger is I want to point out two instances in the life of Jesus where he was anger, angry in order to capture the essence of God's anger. So the first one is in Mark 3, 1 to 6. Well, the, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. The other one is a famous scene in the temple where Jesus cleanses the temple. So here's the first scene, Mark 3, 1 to 6. And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. He had a withered hand. He, he might have been from birth. He might have injured himself in work. And they watched Jesus, they being the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, arms folded, eyes locked on Jesus, waiting to see what he does, so that they might accuse him. Their hearts are wanting to accuse Christ, pin him down, have something on him, get some dirt on him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, the leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He looked at these religious leaders with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So I want to show you a couple of the things going on at the heart level for Jesus here with this anger. First of all is this, Jesus is angry about sin and all of its effects in the world. Notice how Jesus is drawn to this man with the withered hand. Here's Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus created everything. 
Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. And Colossians 1 gives us more specific detail and says it was Jesus that did that. Now here's Jesus. He designed this world. He created this man with this withered hand. And we see the the effects of sin in the world. And Jesus is drawn to him. He wants to heal him. He wants to make him well. He wants to bring peace and shalom and wholeness and bring restoration to this man's body. And so one, we see Jesus is angry over sin and its effects. But what is the one thing that's very specific that Jesus is angry about? He's angry about the religious hypocrisy of these leaders. They would rather bust Jesus, right? They would rather watch him and bust him than care for people. They don't care for people at all. Their hearts are filled with anger. Their hearts are filled with rage and murder. They want to kill Jesus. A kind of religion that places obeying man-made rules over caring for people. A kind of religion that's about externals and rules that keep us from loving those around us. Obeying man-made rules where it trumps loving people. And Jesus is angry about religious hypocrisy here. He's angry over the hardness of their hearts. They would rather catch Jesus in a sin than care for people. These are the leaders. These should have been the guys coming alongside this man, throwing an arm around him, getting to know his name, caring for him, praying for him. And instead, they're over there with hardness of heart, self-righteousness, and anger brewing in their hearts and trying to catch Jesus in something that he did wrong so they can kill him, so they can murder him. But notice Jesus here is angry with their religion. He's angry with this approach to God that loves rules over people. And Jesus is angry about this. He's grieved. Angry over the effects of sin. It burdened him that this man did not experience peace and shalom in his body. Jesus is about bringing restoration to what is broken. And also angry over the religious hypocrisy. So you see what's what's stirring anger in Jesus' life here. Next scene, cleansing of the temple. Love for God, love for people. Cleansing of the temple. This is a familiar story. We'll read it anyways. John 2, 13 to 17. Notice Jesus' anger here. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now notice Jesus' anger here. He makes a whip. He's driving people, oxen, flipping tables over, dumping coins out. On the, on the surface, it looks like he's just flying off the handle. But notice what it says here. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Notice Jesus', notice Jesus anger here is driven by zeal. Zeal for God, zeal for the glory of God, zeal for the worship of God. And also he's angry over the exploitation and people being taken advantage of. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but what would happen is here's the temple and people would travel from a far distance to come and offer sacrifices. And oftentimes they wouldn't bring animals themselves. And so they'd have to purchase animals once they got to the city. And so these people knew that they were in a desperate situation, wanting to worship and connect with God. And they, they overcharged them for these animals. And even they would come with money that didn't compute in Jerusalem's time. And so there would be money changers. And they would actually charge them to change over their money just so that they can come and worship. And Jesus looks out at this. And here's this place where they're supposed to be connecting with God. There's supposed to be a place where they're coming and connecting with a God who loves them. A God who shows grace and a God who shows mercy. And instead, they're being exploited. 
and they're being taken advantage of. They're supposed to be connecting with the God who loves them, and they're being mistreated. And God's angry. Jesus is angry. So what does he do? He makes a whip of cords. Notice here, Jesus' anger is slow. He makes a whip. Think about this with me for a minute. You got to go get the leather for a whip. You got to go purchase it, borrow it, get it from a friend. He had to learn how to make it. He's a carpenter, not a whip maker. Maybe he knew a buddy that knew how to make whips, had him over, teach me how to do this. Went home, sat at a table, made a whip the entire time thinking about how he would walk into that temple and what he would do. This is calculated, thought out, slow building, righteous anger. Jesus' anger is slow. He doesn't just fly off the handle. It has to do with love for people, love for God. Zeal, passion is what's driving Jesus here in his anger. Passion. One of the very first descriptions we get of the God of the Bible is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which says this, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. God's anger is real, it is righteous, it is omnipotent, and it is slow. It is slow. God is slow to be provoked. Slow building, thought out anger that had to do with worship of God, glory of God, and love for people. Jesus sees religious hypocrisy, he's angry. He sees people being taken advantage of, he's angry. He sees the glory of God being just missed out in a place of of the temple where it's supposed to be seen and worshiped and experienced by all, and instead people are being taken advantage of. Jesus gets angry, driven by love, passion, zeal, love for people, love for God. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus shows us here in the New Testament that there are things that we should be angry about, that we need to be angry about. In fact, this morning, I want to call two people to repentance, two types of people, the people that are always angry and always flying off the handle and the people who are never angry. Because the people who are never angry, they need to repent too. Because we see in Jesus that love for God and love for people demands that we be angry, demands that we have zeal, demands that we have passion. Love for God, love for people, zeal for the glory of God, and hatred for sin and all of its effects demands that we get angry in this life because those things are not fully realized. And people are hurting and God's glory is not seen and not loved. So this sermon is not just for the person who's always angry. It's also for the chilled out, super calm, overly calm, spiritually indifferent, spiritually lazy in here. You don't ever get mad. You don't ever get fired up. And that's your problem. You don't care. And there are some things in this life and there are some things that have to do with God and this world that demand that we care and demand that we get angry. So Jesus was angry over matters of God's kingdom, God's glory, passion for people and a love for God. And here's where Jesus' anger is set apart from ours. I know a lot of times we like to justify our anger and say, well, this is righteous, but the waters get a little bit muddy. See Jesus' righteous anger here. God's kingdom, God's glory, passion for people, love for God. And here's where ours is set apart from Jesus' anger. We get angry over matters of our own kingdoms, not God's kingdom. Our anger is all too often driven by a zeal and a love for our own authority and our own glory. Our anger is mostly rooted not in love for God or others, but in love for ourselves. And here's where we see the idolatry in our anger. So angry like God, we see the righteousness there. But now angry, anger and idolatry. Here's where we see the dysfunction of our anger in our lives. Because in this scenario, when we're angry, it still arises out of passion. Anger still arises out of love, but it's love for ourselves. 
Not love for God and not love for people. Here is the idolatry of anger. It is love of self. Love of self. And I want you, I want to encourage you to just be honest with yourself right now. And just be self-introspective and just look at your own heart and see if you can't trace your anger down to a love of self rather than a love of God and a love for people. And in our discipleship, guys, we need to, and how we view life, we need to come to a realization that there is something about us that is broken. The Bible calls it sin. And that sin very often shows itself in a radical self-centeredness and a love for ourselves. And it shows itself in all, in all these things. It shows itself in our anger with others. It shows itself in our anger with circumstances. And it most, it, it most pointedly shows itself in our anger towards God. So let's talk about that. When we're angry with others, circumstances and God, first angry with others. Notice the idolatry. Notice the self-love. We get angry when someone corrects me, disagrees with me, thinks I'm wrong. I get angry when people don't view things the way I see them. So I'm in meetings and I'll offer an opinion that's not immediately bought into by everybody around me. And immediately said, yep, that's the way we should look at it. In fact, sometimes it's dismissed. So what do I do? I get mad, I shut up, and I take my proverbial ball home and I pout. That's what I do. Because you're not seeing it the way I see it. I'm not getting my way. This shows itself, this self-centeredness shows itself with people who are even difficult to love. Sometimes we get angry with people who are just hard to love. Why? Not because they're hard to love, but because it inconveniences us. Because we need to make some effort in loving them. And so we're inconvenienced. We need to reorient our agenda, our time, and we need to actually show some effort. And we actually end up getting angry with people who are difficult to love, not because of them, but because we love ourselves. We have to show effort. We get angry when we're personally mistreated or ignored or disrespected. That person ignored me. They didn't say hi to me. They were short with me. They didn't text me. They didn't invite me. They hurt me. And in saying this, I have to acknowledge that there are some of us in here who have walked in who have had some serious injustices and some serious offenses in your life. And some of these things are not petty. They are very, very real. And I acknowledge that. And not everything I say is going to immediately solve that for you. Those are real hurts. But God has really called us to deal with those in a certain way. But if most of us would trace our anger and our bitterness, a lot of it has to do not with some real injustices, but because we have ourselves at the center of everything. You know, this self-centeredness, this anger, this is at the root of so much hurt and brokenness in marriage. Married couples, you'll resonate with this. You didn't serve me, meet my needs, respect me, bend to my will, see it my way. You're not making me happy. And oftentimes what I see in marriage is two radically self-centered, self-focused people who both expect the other person to just automatically know what the other's wants, needs, and desires are. And they just expect the other person to just serve them and meet their needs without saying a word. And when both people are doing that, you see the issues that can arise of that. We're selfish in marriage. We don't see ourselves as servants, but rather we're self-focused. How does this self-centeredness show itself? Our anger sometimes points to our pride as well. When we see ourselves as better than others, it leads to frustration and anger when they don't meet our expectations or they don't meet our standards. And because we're prideful, because we see ourselves as better than others, we take a posture of superiority and contempt. Does this person even know what they're doing? This guy's an idiot. I work way harder than she does. This guy doesn't even care about his grass or his lawn. 
Look at this guy's yard. What an idiot. Idiot. Fool. And we see a lot of times in our anger with others, a lot of it has to do with we ourselves putting ourselves at the center of the universe and we display a radical self-centeredness. How about this? We get angry in the midst of circumstances, right? I don't know how many different times I've sat in a counseling session with someone after they just had this like big blow up and they turn to me and they say, I I did this and they'll confess that and they'll say, that's not me. That's not who I am. And what they do is they subtly point the finger at the circumstance and they say, this person or this situation that made me act that way. That's not me. Let me ask you something. If I were to take this water bottle and I were to shake it violently, right? I didn't come up with this illustration. Somebody else did. So don't think I'm that smart. If I shook this water bottle and water went flying everywhere, all over the Powers family right down here, right? And the Campions right here. And I were to ask you this, why'd water fly out of that bottle? You'd be like, uh, cause you shook it. And I'll say this, no, water came out of the bottle because water's in the bottle. Water's in the bottle. The shaking revealed the water in the bottle. And a lot of times we point to the shaking as the cause for the water But what we come to find out is that the circumstances that expose the water in the bottle, namely our sin, namely our anger, namely our bitterness, and we blame our circumstances. We get angry when things don't go according to our plan, our will, or when we're inconvenienced. This is why we get angry in traffic jams. This is why we get angry when the person at Starbucks is ordering a drink with 20 adjectives and it's taking them 15 minutes to make it. And in our heart, it's brewing stupid, idiot, fool, raka. And we see our brokenness and we see our radical self-centeredness. That's why we get angry when our kids have to use the bathroom 20 minutes into a three-hour trip and we yell at them and we're angry. Why? Because we have to stop the car. We're not getting our way. Things aren't going according to our plan. Parents, a lot of our anger with our kids has to do with our inconvenience rather than their sin. How many of you have visibly expressed disgust at your kids or have sinned in anger towards them for something like spilling milk or just knocking something over or being loud or making messes or in other words, being kids? What did we expect when we had kids? A lot of times it's not their sin, it's just their immaturity. It's just that they're eight. It's just that they're five. And we can justify our anger all day long by pointing a finger at them, but a lot of times we get mad because we're inconvenienced. I have to put down my book and solve this issue. I have to stop eating this meal to clean up this mess. I'm not getting the peace and quiet I'm wanting right now. Lord, business is being bothered and I'm angry. And for those of you who saw the Lego movie, that reference would make sense. We point fingers all day long at others and blame circumstances for our impatience and fits of anger. But our major failure is to see that it's our own self-centeredness in our own hearts and our constant sin of placing ourselves at the center of everything that causes most of our anger. We see everything in terms of ourselves. And I challenge you, next time you're angry, stop and just pause and just trace your anger to your heart and ask yourself this question, why? And I will tell you nine times out of 10, it's not a righteous anger. It's not love for God or love for people or zeal for the glory of God. It's somehow, some way, you've been inconvenienced and yourself's at the center and you're being prideful and you're viewing others in contempt. Do it. I did it yesterday. It's humbling. It's humbling. Now, the greatest revealer of our self-centeredness, however, is when we're angry with God. And I just want to say to those of you, maybe you've come in here and you're just wrestling with something in your life and you're just angry with God about something. 
I want to encourage you that there's a time and a season for that. I want to encourage you with the Psalms. All over the psalmist, um, and in the psalms, you'll see the psalmist just crying out. He's really just struggling. He's really just bitter. He's really just angry with God. And he's really just kind of putting that out there, and he's wrestling through that. And so there's a time and a season for that. But oftentimes, our anger with God reveals how radically self-centered we are. God, this is not how I planned my life. You haven't given me the things I wanted when I wanted them. You're not answering my prayers. You're not treating me fairly. This is not what I deserve. I expected to have a bigger house, more money in the bank, a better job by this point in my life. I expected to have a more spiritual husband, better kids. Why do I or do I not have this physical trait? Why have I gotten this physical illness? Why is this my lot in life right now? I expected to be married and have a family by now. Why don't I have kids? You are my God and you should serve me. God, you were not there when I needed you. God, you took this thing from me. I blame you and now I'm angry. The ultimate fruit of our idolatry of self is when we place ourselves on the throne of God and we look down on God's actions or his non-actions and we begin to judge and determine whether or not what he's done is right or wrong. Do you see the radical self-centeredness there? Do you see the role reversal? Do you see how you're playing God? All these spheres, what we're doing is we're placing ourselves at the center. We're placing ourselves on the throne. God, circumstances, others exist for me to serve me, to accomplish my will. And so Jesus here is showing us how bad it is in the heart. He's showing us the root of our anger. He's showing us the root of our fits of rage. And so we see that our own hearts are broken in this, but we also see that something else is at work. In fact, someone else is at work who leverages anger and bitterness for his purposes, for his plans. So we talk about anger and God, how that's righteous. We talk about anger and our idolatry. Now let's talk about anger and our enemy. And I I just want to really, really briefly just point this out. That there's a connection in scripture between our anger and the works and the effects of Satan and his minions. Two verses I want to show you. And looking at, this verse, looking at these verses, I don't ever want us to come to a place where we kind of, again, Satan becomes another person where we get to point a finger and blame shift. No, our sin's our own and we need to own it. And so even though he's at work and even though there's circumstances, even though there's people that even really wrong us, our anger's still our own. Our sin is still our own. But notice these two passages, Ephesians 4. Look, look how Paul links anger to the work of Satan, our enemy. Be angry and do not sin. So be angry, that's fine, but don't sin. Don't sin in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it. Don't let it linger. Don't let it sit. Don't let it brew. And give no opportunity to the devil. So why would he say that? Why would he say don't sin in your anger and then don't let it deal with it? Don't let it sit. Don't let it stew. Why? Because when we do that, we do what? What's Paul say? We give an opportunity to who? The devil. So you're seeing the connection here. Notice again, Paul, 2 Corinthians 2. There's an issue at the church of Corinth. There's a guy who had some gross sin. They excommunicated him. He's repentant. Now they're bringing him back. Paul's working through forgiveness with this church about this individual. And he writes this. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now notice what he says about this, the inner workings of forgiveness here. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see the connection there? Paul teaches us in these two passages that we have a real enemy, the devil, Satan. 
And this enemy has plans and designs. And what he wants to do is he wants to distort the image of God. And so where there's supposed to be peace and unity, he wants to sow discord. Where there's supposed to be forgiveness and grace and mercy, he wants to sow anger and bitterness. He loves it. He gains an opportunity for it. It's his design. It's his schemes. Satan wants to distort and see decay run rampant in God's designs. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a person that really wrestles with bitterness when it comes to this issue of Satan and what he's doing, I'm not saying that you're going to turn out like the girl from the exorcist if you let anger brew in your hearts. But it seems as though there's a connection to Satan's work and our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, when it brews, when it stews. Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. Let us not be outwitted by Satan. Let us not be ignorant of his designs. I want to give you a word of caution, all of us. Anger is no small thing. Bitterness is no small thing. Unforgiveness is no small thing. It is demonic. It is satanic. And we need to feel the weight of that. Now, if your head begins to spin and you puke green, okay, call the office. We're going to need to get involved, okay? But, okay. So, okay, Tony, we see where we fall short. You've shown us the radical self-centeredness of our anger and our impatience and our bitterness. It's because we're on the throne. It's because we see everything in terms of ourself. We're being selfish rather than servants. You've shown us where we fall short, where we need the grace of God and how much we need Christ. And this is what I would encourage you. If you've come in here and you've never heard the gospel, if you're a person that's angry, come and see that there is forgiveness and grace at the cross. That Jesus died for your anger to forgive your sin and to cause you to be righteous and to have a right relationship with God. And so if you've never embraced that, come to see that you're an angry person, you need God's grace, and come and have your heart changed by the cross. But for those of us who are in Christ who wrestle with this anger issue, okay, Tony, you've, you, you've showed us where we fall short. Now, how do we start to gain some momentum? How do we start to bear fruit in our anger? How can we start to be angry like God and not angry with, because of self-centeredness? And to do that, we need to look at Jesus and his gospel. And so quickly here at the end, I have seven things that the gospel teaches us on how to deal with our anger. The first is this. The gospel gives us a correct view of ourselves. In the gospel, we see that we are sinners. We are created by God, and we have offended God, and we have made an affront to his glory. We are not the creator. We are creation. And what the gospel tells us is that we're sinners. And that's the bad news. But what that does is that brings us down off of our lofty throne and onto the ground where everybody's the same. Everybody that we're here sitting with is all beggarly and needy for the grace of God. No one's better than anybody else. We're all in the same situation and we need the same grace. So, so often our pride is because of our, uh, so often our, our anger rather is because of our pride. Our, we hold people in contempt. We think we're better than And the gospel tells us, no, you're a sinner, just like the person you're angry with, and you both need the grace of God. You're both beggarly for that. We are not God. Rather, we are sinners who have offended God. And so this truth brings us off of our prideful throne. So I don't care if you make 100K in here or you don't have a job. I don't care if you're a male or a female. I don't care if you've walked with God for 60 years or two minutes. Nobody's better than anybody else. The good news of the gospel brings us all down onto the same floor. We're looking at the same cross and the same Savior and needy of the same grace. We should never, ever, ever have a heart of pride or contempt. And when we do that, we're not believing the gospel. We're believing that we're something other than sinners who are beggarly for the grace of God. And so it causes us to see that we are the same as everyone else. And rather, the gospel calls us to, to serve and love. 
Look at Philippians 2. Look at what Paul says about selfish ambition, self-centeredness, and conceit. Look what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from self-centeredness, nor pride, nor contempt. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So don't think in terms of you. Think in terms of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what Paul does is he goes on after that to explain how Jesus did not put himself before us, but rather put our needs before his own. And how God humbled himself to come down here. He saw our need. He saw our need for forgiveness. He saw our need for grace. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And he died a shameful death so that we can be forgiven. And Paul points to the cross and says, don't think of yourselves as better than, and think of yourselves as servants. Be humble. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Why? Because the God you love served you like that. He served you like that. Second is this. The gospel creates a community of servants rather than a group of people who demand to be served. Notice Mark 10, 45. I bring this verse up quite a bit says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, instead of seeing everyone as our servants, whose only goal in life should be to make sure our will be done on earth, the gospel tells us the story of a God who humbled himself as a servant to serve sinners in their greatest need. When we're angry, we are seeing people who are supposed to be accomplishing our will, and they're not doing it. The gospel flips that. It takes us from being selfish to servants. It takes us from being prideful to humble. Most of our anger issues are solved when we shift our heart and mind's thinking to see ourselves as servants rather than the ones who ought to be served. Inconveniences become opportunities to serve and glorify God rather than opportunities for anger when we see ourselves as servants. Again, trace your anger back to your self-centeredness and see it there. I challenge you to do that. Third is this. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. God's holy, righteous, omnipotent wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And in Christ, your puny, unrighteous anger can be satisfied too. Jesus died to satisfy the holy, omnipotent, righteous anger of God. And by the power of Christ in the gospel and looking at the cross, your anger can be satisfied too. At the heart of the gospel is a God who is righteously angry because of our sin. And instead of wiping us out, flying off the handle, and judging us in his wrath, he sends his son, Jesus, who in our place for our sin bears, absorbs, the, the omnipotent, holy wrath of God. God was rightly angry because of our sin and our cosmic rebellion. And instead of pouring that wrath out on us, in grace and in mercy, he pours it out on his son instead of us. That's penal substitutionary atonement. In our place, Jesus died to pay the penalty and bore the wrath of God. Wrath that was intended for you, Jesus took upon himself. Now don't tell me that doesn't have anything to do with your wrath, with your anger. How can we insist on pouring out our unrighteous wrath on those around us while claiming to know the power of the cross. The power of the cross is a story of you are ill-deserving of God's love and you are very much deserving of his wrath. And instead of wrath, he gave you grace. And if you are a recipient of that, if you trust that, if you believe that, 
Now you see how offensive it is to receive the benefits of grace yourself, but withhold it from others. How is the gospel displayed in your life when wrath and anger are always present, not grace? We can't enjoy the blessings of God's grace in our lives when we're refusing to extend it to others. You're forgetting. In that moment, when I kicked that ball and I yelled at my son to get in the car or these other fits of anger that I have in my home, I'm forgetting that Jesus died to make me an object of God's mercy. When all I do is make others objects of my wrath, I'm forgetting that Jesus died to make me an object of his grace and an object of his mercy. Fourth is this. When I look at the cross, I see that God is for me. He is for me. This goes back to anger with God and anger in our circumstances. So oftentimes we just point a finger at God and we just think that our lives should be something other than what they are. Or we get angry when a friend is removed or a parent is removed or a spouse is removed or we lose our health or something happens, something horrific. And we think to ourselves, this shouldn't be happening to me. And we start to sit in judgment on God and be angry with God. The cross changes that. Here's why. When we look at the cross, we see that God is undeniably for me. How can I ever question God's goodness in my life when I see that he gave me his most precious object, his son? God is not a God who is about hoarding good gifts. He is about a God who is about provision and giving good gifts. You need to remember that, friend, when something horrible happens. When something bad happens, when something horrific happens, because everything in your circumstance is going to cry out, this is not good, and you're going to be prone to bitterness and anger towards God, and you need to look to the cross, and you need to say, no, God, you're a good God, and you give me good gifts. You met my greatest need, and you gave me your son. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If here's a God who didn't hold back even his own son, his most precious and prized possession, how could we ever say that God is not going to meet our needs or he doesn't love us? Reminding ourselves of this allows me to trust God instead of being angry with him when things don't go my way. And we look at the cross and we see that in the cross, in that bleak, dark moment, when everyone thought that was supposed to be the savior of the world, God was going about redeeming in a different way. That was a bleak moment. And what they didn't realize is that God was working his greatest redemption in that dark moment. And maybe in this dark moment in your life, that pain, those tears, that hardship, maybe God is working his greatest redemption in your life. A good work of growth in that. Don't question his goodness, friend. He is good. Look to the cross. Fifth is this. The gospel teaches me that Jesus did not return evil for evil, but willingly subjected himself to an unjust and wrongful death on a cross so that we might be forgiven and reconciled. You want to talk about real injustice? You want to talk about, you want to talk about somebody really sinning against you? 1 Peter 2.23 says this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Some of you guys have been really hurt, really sinned against, really wounded, and really offended. You have to see Jesus in your place, suffering an unjust death, being reviled, being beaten, being mocked. And what he did is the massive trust of God in that moment. 
I'm not going to enact wrath myself. I'm not going to take my anger out on them. I'm going to keep trusting God that this is his will, this is what he wants, and not take vengeance upon myself. God will enact that righteous justice. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And this is where for us who have been hurt and wounded and the other person's heart is just hard and they don't want to reconcile at all. Here's where people who have been really violated and offended and the other person just doesn't care. Here's where the return of Christ, when he comes to open a can on his enemies and make all things right, there's where that satisfies that anger in our hearts. God, I'm gonna trust you. You're good, you're just, you're holy, you're righteous. And you are going to take care of this one day on my behalf. I don't need to do it on, I don't need to take it upon myself. And I don't need to ruin my heart and ruin my life and give in to the designs of Satan by allowing my heart to walk down this bitter, angry path. Six is this. In the gospel, we see that Christ is a greater joy, a greater security, and a greater treasure than anything this world has to offer. And because that's the case, I can be content with whatever circumstance So it doesn't matter what comes my path or doesn't come to my path. It doesn't matter what I think I should have, but God hasn't given to me yet. What I'm looking to in those moments is I'm looking to something earthly to satisfy me and fulfill me instead of looking at the cross, instead of looking at his son. And so what I can do is I can be content in my circumstances because Christ is a greater joy. A lot of times our anger is rooted in the fact that what we truly love is threatened. What we truly love and what we truly live for might be removed. It might be a house. It might be a marriage. It might be a job. It might be a paycheck. And we get frantic and we freak out and we get bitter and we get angry. Why? Because what we really, really love is going to be taken away from me. And maybe in this moment of trial, maybe in this moment where where God's just showing you, yeah, you don't have this thing or yeah, this thing got taken away from you. Maybe he's showing you idolatry. Maybe he's showing you, you love this thing more than me. Come and be satisfied in me. Come and be content in me. And some of us are, some of you guys are here and you're praying for things. Maybe God's not giving you that thing because he knows that you're going to abandon him and worship that thing and love that thing and be about that thing instead of him. And God's not going to give you an idol that you'll worship instead of him. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about why I sit here and stand jobless without making 200K a year? Or my family's not exactly what I would want it to be. You ever think like in that moment, God is is being wise in my life. He's teaching me to be content in the son and to see that he is a treasure, to see that he is all that I need. He is all that I need. When the things in life that we truly love, truly live for are threatened or taken away, we tend to get mad and angry with the one who we're created to love and live for. Seventh is this. Here's the last one. The gospel teaches me that God took my sin so seriously that he died for it. And this means this. It means I stopped justifying my anger. I stopped minimizing my anger. It's not that big of a deal. I got it under control. We need to stop blaming God, Satan, others, and circumstances for our sin. We need to own our sin, be sorrowful over our sin, confess our sin, throw ourselves at the grace and the mercy of God, throw ourselves at the community of God, walk in the light, confess our sin, and repent. Because God took sin so seriously that he raised his son up in a public place and crucified him in a bloody, murderous, horrific death so that we can see how serious sin is. He didn't crucify him in, in, in the dark. 
He didn't crucify him in private. He crucified him in public because sin needs to be dealt with in public and be brought out into the light and dealt with. Stop justifying. Stop minimizing. Your family is broken. Your relationships are bitter and brutal because of your anger. And you need to stop acting like it's not that big of a deal. We can handle it. We can take care of it. Don't tell anybody. Don't let it out. And you need to bring it out into the light and deal with it. The gospel would beg us to do that. God took our sins so seriously that he crucified his son in public for it. Now, I love how Jesus goes right into reconciliation in Matthew 5. Do you see that? Section on anger, then he goes right into reconciliation. Look at what he says. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go, and you first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I love this. Why? Because anger doesn't just happen in a vacuum. We are relationally connected. And when you're angry, the other people around you suffer. And so when Jesus talks about anger in the first part of this verse and then talks about reconciliation, that is to say is that your, rec- your anger is going to make a mess. It's going to hurt. It's going to offend. And you need to go and make that right. Notice how Jesus puts the onus on the person who's the offender. He goes, if you know your brother has something against you, if you know that you've hurt, that you've offended that person, you go. Some of you who are angry, you have this aura about you. This is who I am. Deal with it. If I've offended you, you come and talk to me. You tell me, and then we'll deal with it. But if you're going to be a coward and not confront me, then we're not going to deal with it. And I know you, and I know that posture, and I know that attitude. You want to know why? Because I'm prone to it. And Jesus puts the onus on the person who's the offender. He puts the onus on the person who's angry and is making a wreck of every relationship in their lives. And he says, you go. You go. And he places a priority over over public worship on reconciliation. He shows that walking in reconciliation is as much of a priority as gathering publicly. It's even more important if it's not dealt with. And Jesus says, if you remember that your brother or your wife or your kids or your coworker, someone in this church, someone in some other church has something against you, meaning you've hurt them and the context is anger, you leave your offering, you stop singing that song, you forget about dropping that money in that offering plate, and you go and you repent. It's on you, angry person. It's on you. Go. Soften your heart by the power of the gospel. Be humble. Go. Confess. And look the people in the eye who are scared of you, who you've offended, who you've brought hurt and brokenness into their life, and you humble yourself and you confess. What this verse means is that if you have to run downstairs and pull your kid out of Sunday school, right in the middle of worship, to tell them that you're sorry for blowing up on them on Sunday morning, you do that. If you've got to pull your wife aside, right in the middle of a song, go off in some hallway, just confess your sin, you do that. Because all your raising of your hands, your money in a plate, your attendance at church means you jack if you don't walk in reconciliation. Whatever you offer means nothing if you harden your heart in your anger 
you don't seek reconciliation. Why? Because you can't celebrate the gospel of reconciliation while refusing to seek reconciliation in your relationships. Now, here's the power of the gospel. God was not the offender. He was the offended. God, in our relationship and in this world, is the offended. He's not the offender. And yet this God was the one who descended, humbled himself. He humbled himself to the cross where he bore God's wrath in our place for our sin so that we could be reconciled and we could be forgiven. That is the power to overcome your anger. It's not self-help. It's not Oprah. It's not Dr. Phil. You take a long, hard look at the cross and you see how God who was offended in grace and in mercy, and instead of giving you what you deserve, gave you what you don't deserve, which is his son, and poured his wrath out on him instead of you so that you can have a relationship with him. The offended one did the hard work of reconciliation so that you can be forgiven. Don't tell me that it doesn't have anything to do with your anger. It has everything to do with your anger. And it's the power by which we need to walk. Reconciliation is the gospel. And we put it on display in our relationships when we seek it. So I want to invite us all to be people that have a robust view of the cross. That the cross is not just that, the thing, that event that saved me, but it is the very powerful dynamic of which I'm living my life based upon right now. Every situation, every circumstance, I look to the cross. It has answers. It has resources. And that we be people that repent and seek reconciliation. And I want to invite all my friends that struggle with anger See that the gospel is the power to overcome your selfish, sinful anger and that meditating on Christ can change you. I want to invite all of us who really struggle with self-centered and idolatrous anger to come and be angry about the things that God is angry about, to come and be passionate and zealous for the kingdom of God. Redeem that emotion, redeem that anger to advance the gospel and care for people in their brokenness. I want you to still be angry, but I want you to be angry about the right things, about the brokenness in the world and where the glory of God's not seen. I want to invite all my spiritually passive and indifferent friends who are just lazy, they're not provoked, they're not moved by anything, to begin fostering a zeal for the things that God loves and to get mad about the things that God gets mad about. And I want you to be about God instead of the bears. I also want to invite anybody Anybody, after this service, you want to come down, pray. I'll be down here just praying, repenting. After first service was awesome. A ton of people came, a lot of tears, a lot of prayers. So if God's just owned you this message and he's put his finger on this in your life and you're keeping it in the dark and your home's a wreck and your heart is a wreck, you come up here and we're going to seek God and we're going to seek his grace and we're going to cry out and we're going to pray. Let's pray now. God, I thank you. I thank you for your gospel. God, this is no joke. Anger is alive and well in our hearts. Thank you for addressing it. God, for some of us, anger has ruined our hearts, ruined our lives. We're bitter people. We're brewing and stewing even right now. We're people that fly off the handle. The people around us are affected. Our marriage is affected. God, I pray that you would breathe hope and life into the situation, that you would see, that the, we would all see that you're for us, that you love us, that you want to redeem our anger, that you want to redeem our relationships, and that your cross has the power to do it.
move, act, and do your will and accomplish what you want among us as people. And may we see your glory for what it is and that our hearts will be softened to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.